Let's turn together in our Bibles to the third chapter of Luke's Gospel as we continue together our series in Luke. This great John the Baptist, you will recall, is pointing to one greater than he, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our focus two weeks ago, you will recall that Pastor Wessel was here last week, our focus two weeks ago was on the first six verses of chapter 3, and our focus today will be on verses 7 through 14, but I think it's wise that we begin again with verse 1 in chapter 3 for the reading of God's Word. Let us pray together. O Father, this minister is totally unworthy to proclaim your word. And we are unworthy to have it. But Christ is worthy to be preached and to embraced and believed. And so, Father, we ask that now your Holy Spirit will do what only he can, open hearts to receive the truth as it is in Jesus that believers may continue to do so more and more, that the lost here today will believe in Christ for the first time. Accomplish your goodwill and purpose, we pray, through the proclamation of this, your word, we ask humbly as your servants, in Jesus' name, amen. Standing together, the third chapter of Luke's gospel, beginning with verse 1, this is the word of God. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Triconitus and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now in verses 7 through 14, we find four themes in the preaching of John the Baptist. Four themes that are largely foreign to modern ears, often in the church and certainly outside of the church. Four themes that are largely foreign to modern ears, but that are according to the biblical perspective, indispensable and crucial. Let's look at those themes together. The first theme that we find in his preaching, foreign to modern ears by and large, is the theme repentance. Repentance. Now we dwelt on that a couple of weeks ago, but it needs to be said again because we find it, of course, in verse 3. That is the calling of John. He went into the region of the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance in reference to the forgiveness of sins. And that's what he's doing in the passage that we have read together this morning. John was called to preach repentance. In pointing to Jesus Christ, he preached repentance. I heard an old preacher once say something to the effect that when John the Baptist was beheaded and his head was put on a silver platter, that his mouth continued to move, repent. (laughs) Well, I don't know if that was the case, but I know his heart was in it because he was pointing to the Savior, and that's why he preached repentance. Old Testament, the word naham is one word that is used that has reference really to the emotional element of repentance, the sorrow that we have for sin. Now, repentance is not sorrow alone, but when it is godly sorrow, it leads to repentance. Another word is the word shuv, that is translated turn or to return, often translated repent. But exclusively, almost at least, in the, Old Test- in the New Testament, when we come to the preaching of John, the preaching of Jesus, and references in other parts of the New Testament, the word that is used for repentance is metanoia. And metanoia means to change the mind. It means a change of mind. The battle is in the mind. And accompanying that change of mind is a change of direction. You were walking this way, the mind has changed, and there is an about face, and you begin to walk this way. You were walking against Christ, now you are walking with Christ. Now, it's important for us to realize in the New Testament that repentance is not a work of righteousness that you perform. Yes, you repent, nobody repents for you. You believe, no one believes for you. But when you believe, it's God's gift to you. When you repent, it is God's gift to you. It is not working for God's favor. Repentance shows that God in grace has already moved in your soul. Repentance is not a work to produce grace. Repentance is not a work of your righteousness to procure grace. Repentance is not a condition for receiving grace. You do not repent to be accepted by God. You repent because you are accepted by God. Repentance, I repeat, is a grace. The New Testament is not saying... If you repent, you can have Christ. The New Testament is saying, if you have Christ, 
it will be seen in repentance. When you begin to know and understand that God loves you, then you and I begin to hate sin and to turn from it. And so repentance is the obverse side of faith. Where there is faith, there will always be a repenting faith. Where there is repentance, it will always be a believing repentance. And that's why God's minister stands and he proclaims, or should, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent. God's minister calls for repentance as every sinner's duty, even though no sinner can can repent apart from the grace of God, because the minister, as he preaches, is relying upon the Holy Spirit to enable hearts by grace alone to respond to the call. We also made the point, you'll recall, a couple of weeks ago, and focused there, that this is not only for the initial beginning of the Christian life, but that repentance is ongoing throughout the believer's life, that every day should be a day of belief and repentance, confession and belief and repentance. And so it applies to us, believers here today, and your ongoing life. The question is, do you repent? Have you repented? Are you repenting? Am I, are you harboring something within his heart that needs to go? You need to repent. Well, that's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ, the hound of heaven, loves his people so, and stays with us so, and works with us so, and will not let us go, because he loves you. And because repentance really means more conformity to the image of his Son. Repentance really means that I'm beginning to understand what it means to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself. And so let me encourage you, believer, perhaps you're discouraged. You know the battle within the heart with sin, within the mind with sin. Perhaps you think, well, I'm repenting and I'm failing, and I'm repenting and I'm failing. Keep moving, keep going, confess, believe, repent, trust The Lord is growing you. The Lord is showing love to you. The Lord will not forsake you when you come sincerely before him and ask that he help you. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounded. Remember, believer, the Lord never tires of you. He will never tire of you. He will never say, you failed and I've had enough. The Lord loves his people. And as you come and you're weak in your repentance, he will grow you. He will mature you. Keep moving, keep going. And so he preached repentance because John the Baptist was proclaiming the one who would come. We preach repentance because he has come and because he is coming again. But there's another theme in John the Baptist's preaching that is really foreign to modern ears, often in the church. And it is this, this is second, that grace, grace really trans forms sinful hearts. Now the secular man thinks, well, I can change myself. And so he sees that there are some problems. He doesn't understand them to be sin problems, of course, but there are things that just aren't going right. And so he goes and he talks with his psychotherapist and they make a few adjustments and a few changes, but never is there fundamental change in the human heart. It can happen apart from the grace of God. And in the church we have 
a rising element of antinomianism. People who are saying, yes, there's grace and it saves, but that doesn't mean that there necessarily has to be some kind of radical change in my life. But the problem with that is the scriptures teach us that when you receive Christ, you receive him as your prophet, as your priest, and as your king. You can't say, well, I'll receive him as my priest who died for me, but I will not receive him as my prophet who speaks to me through his word and his king who rules over me. You cannot receive Christ as savior and not also as the Lord of your life. Now, what we see in the text as John the Baptist preaches is that grace really does transform the people to whom he's preaching. Maybe not everyone, but Luke gives us samples of groups that come to him, those who speak to him about the change that is happening and that they want to happen because of grace within their hearts. Notice the crowds generally here in verses 10 and 11, the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. What shall we do? Their hearts are pricked. Just as when Peter would preach after the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 2, they cried out, what shall we do? And he told them about Christ and the gospel. So what shall we do? The crowd generally asks, and he says, well, you need to share what you have. And then, of course, there are the tax collectors. What did they say in verses 12 and 13? Well, they came also to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now, we'll see this again later in Luke's gospel, but the tax collectors were notorious extortionists. There was a great hierarchy in which they would have to or thought they had to get more money to put into the pockets of the people that were above them and into their own pockets, Jesus does not say, cease taking up taxes. He says, don't bribe and extort. And then there were soldiers who came, and we see that in verse 14, another sample of a group that would come. And they said, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Probably these were Jewish soldiers who were related to Herod or perhaps to the temple, He doesn't say, well, stop being soldiers. Jesus says, don't shake down people, don't slander people, and be content with your wages. Now, what's going on here? Is John saying, you need to do these things in order to have Christ, to whom I'm pointing? Or is he saying to them, if you have Christ, to whom I am pointing, if you believe in him, this will be the fruit. Actually, the fruits, it's plural in the text, fruits in your life. Well, what's going on here, of course, is that he is saying, if there is grace, there will be fruit. For the crowd, what was the problem with the crowd? Notice that all of these are heart issues. Did you see? Uh, Notice the crowd. What's their problem? They're not sharing with others what they have. Their problem is a lack of compassion. Do you have that problem? That's a heart issue. The tax collectors, what's their problem? Well, they're not just in the exercise of their duties, their covetous in their hearts. Justice, covetousness, those are heart issues. The soldiers, what's their problem? They're not content with their wages. They were not content. All of these, all of these are heart issues. Just think of that one for a moment, contentment. Who of us does not have a problem with contentment? 
But have you ever thought of lack of contentment as showing a heart that is far from God? Have you ever thought about that? The believer knows if we die with the least little bit from God, we are in his debt. But the unbeliever can't fathom that. He doesn't live that way. He believes that he contracts with God and that God owes him. And so he's never content with what he has. So these are hard issues. That's the point. Now be careful here. Fruit is not the root. Fruit is real, but our fruit will never be perfect. The scriptures say when there's grace, there will be fruit, but it never says trust the fruit, rely on the fruit. You look for it, you inspect it, but the fruit always points back to Jesus Christ. You are not qualifying for grace when you repent. When you see fruit in your life, it's not somehow qualifying for acceptance. No, no, because you are accepted, there will be fruit in your life. Well, that's a theme that needs to be preached. No fruit, no grace. Where there's grace, there's fruit. What about it? Now, there's a third theme that is largely foreign to modern ears that we find in the preaching of John the Baptist, and it is this. We have no merit of our own. Notice in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you God is able of these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now that was a blow to the glass jaw of the Jew. The Jews made a merit out of their ancestry. They thought of of, that Abraham was a kind of proto-Moses, and so they saw him as the great lawgiver and keeper along with Moses, and they were his children, and so the keeping of the law descending from Abraham, this they viewed as meritorious. But what John the Baptist says to them is, look, grace is is not inherited. You have it all wrong. There are many things that are inherited. I could see some of your children, and if I didn't know you and I saw you, I would say, ah, this is your child. I can see the traits. Or maybe by the way you act. You know, I could say, um, hey, this is Phil's child. I can see. I can tell. He doesn't mind that. Many things are inherited. Property can be inherited. But acceptance with God, justification, that's not inherited. The new birth, that's not inherited. Salvation is not inherited. Ancestry can bring great blessings, but it is of no worth in our relationship with God. You will not be able to stand on the great day and say, I have Abraham as my father. I have ancestry. And so John says in verse 8, don't begin to say. Don't even think it. Don't even think. I can almost see the answer that's about to come out of your mouth. We have Abraham as our father. No, 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 no. God can raise up children 
to praise him from the very stones. So they relied on ancestry. The question that comes to us this morning is this, upon what do you and I rely? Let me remind you of Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Translated this way in the ESV, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, like menstruous cloths. Our merit, when we think we have merit, shows that we have a warped view of God. Again, that he's a God with whom we contract, rather than a God who in sovereign grace makes covenant. The point that John is making here that will be enlarged upon in the New Testament is look to Christ. All of John's preaching is look to the one who is coming. The point is there is only one who can provide merit for you, and that is Jesus himself. When he went to the cross, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You need merit. If you're going to stand before God accepted, you need merit. It must be perfect merit. It must match up to the demands of the law merit. You need merit, and you cannot provide it. Only one can provide it, and that is Jesus Christ. Do you know this within your heart, within your soul? There is only one who can provide that merit, and that is Christ. He is our merit, or we have none. Now, there's one other theme in John's preaching, one final one that is largely foreign to modern ears and that is really offensive to the secular man. The fourth theme is the wrath of God. In verse 7, he calls them to flee from the wrath to come. Notice how he puts it. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, these are harsh words, but you have to understand there was rabbi smell fungus out there in the crowd. That's an expression that I picked up years ago from A.T. Robertson and his commentaries. He talks about rabbi smell fungus. You know, he's the guy that looks down on everybody. He's the guy that looks down, and he's just like there's some ugly fungus that he's smelling. But Rabbi Smell Fungus and his crowd is there, self-reliant, self-satisfied, thinking they have merit. Jesus calls them poisonous snakes and uses, or John does in verse 7. And of course, the idea here is that when there's a, a brush fire in the desert, the snakes begin to crawl out and flee. So who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There's going to be fire, he says in verse 9. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And in verse 17, we will see hopefully next week, that fire is unquenchable fire, according to Jesus. But let me let you in on something. It really is true that Rabbi Smellfungus was there and his crowd the Pharisees were there, but we're all rabbi smell fungus. I am and you are by nature. There 
is a Pharisee in every human heart. Every one of us. Who because of this, that, or the other think that somehow we're better, somehow we have merit, somehow we rise above the crowd or rise above above others. But no, no, the wrath of God is coming and the Pharisee will be exposed then if it is not exposed now. So that we can confess and believe and trust in Christ as our merit. So John preaches the wrath of God. Now, consistently in the New Testament, we are told that our relationship with Christ depends upon our relationship to our understanding of who he is, what he has done, and what he came to do fundamentally on the cross was to remove the wrath of God. And so your relationship to the wrath of God is determined by your relationship to Jesus. Let's open our Bibles to just a few passages and see that this is consistently taught. Going to the book of Acts, after the resurrection and ascension as the church is preaching and Paul is preaching now in chapter 17 in Athens, in Acts 17, 29 through 31, Paul says this, Acts 17, 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see? The wrath of God, your relationship to him. Or let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols, now that's repentance, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Or turning to the book of Romans, Chapter 5, as I recall, the wrath of God is mentioned 10 times in the book of Romans. But in chapter 5, verse 9, this is the section in which we are told that Christ died for the weak, he died for the ungodly, he died for sinners. And in verse 9 and 10, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The wrath of God. We could go on all day with verses such as these. 
So someone says, Pastor, I just don't like to hear about the wrath of God, and it, it really disturbs my conscience. Well, if you're not a believer in Christ, I hope it will. I really do. I hope it disturbs your conscience so that the Lord leads you to faith and repentance in Christ. But let me say this. You want to do away with the wrath of God, what do you sacrifice if you get away with setting aside in your thinking the wrath of God? If you don't like the wrath of God and you give it up, you sacrifice a right view of who God is. Now, he's loving, he's good, but he's also just. And because he is just, he hates sin. A God who hates sin and who will bring sin to the day of judgment. Do you really want a world, do you want a universe in which the sin of this world is not brought to judgment? In which there's no standard for what is true and not true or what is right and what is wrong? Get rid of God's wrath and that's what you're left with. I remember Dr. Lloyd-Jones saying in a book of his that I read long ago, something to the effect that as he was ministering in England... And he was preaching, of course, through the book of Romans in that first chapter. Paul, what does he do in the first chapter? He begins early on in Romans, unpacking the character and the nature of God. He doesn't begin with man and his need. He begins with the character of God. And he says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is not only at the end of the age, it's being revealed right now, says Paul. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, now what's happening with evangelism in England is this. Let's just set that aside. It's offensive to the ear. People don't like to hear it. So let's have our Sunday evening services. That's when evangelistic services were held, when there were evangelistic services in the churches in England. This would have been in the 60s probably. What they're doing is they say, let's just have a, 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 sir, a service where the, 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 the preaching is just so easy to hear. There's nothing offensive to the ear. Just come and join us. It's going to be light and airy and so much fun for you. But of course, what happened was God was forgotten. The needs of man or perceived needs of man were put first. The character of God was forgotten. And the gospel in large measure was lost. Get rid of the wrath of God, you get rid of a right view of God, but also you get rid of a, the right view of what your, your need is. You can't know your need if you don't understand something about God's holiness and wrath against sin. You can't know it. And if you get rid of the wrath of God, let me tell you most, of, most importantly what you get rid of. You get rid of the cross. There's no cross. Because what is the cross? The cross is the pouring out of the wrath of God upon the Son of God in the place of sinners so that we might be saved from that wrath. That's what the cross is. No wrath, no cross. So give up wrath, you give up the cross. Give up the cross, you give up salvation. I think it's important that we preach the wrath of God. Don't you? Don't you see this? All faithful preaching must stress this. The preaching of God's wrath exposes who we really are. I was reading recently J.C. Ryle, as I sometimes do, and in his book Old Paths, he talked about a shipwreck that had occurred. This is, of course, mid-1900s, mid-1800s, mid-19th century. 
And he said, I shall never forget the effect produced upon my own mind when I read some years ago of that fearful shipwreck, the loss of the Central America. That's the name of the ship. A great steamer which was lost on the voyage from Havana to New York. That steamer was bringing home from California three or four hundred gold diggers. They had all got their gold and were coming home, proposing to spend their latter days in ease in their own country. But man proposes and God disposes. About four and twenty hours after the Central America left Havana, a mighty storm arose. Three or four heavy seas in succession struck the ship and seriously damaged her. The engines became disabled and useless, and she fell off into the trough of the sea. She sprung a leak, and in spite of every effort, the ship began to fill. And after a while, when all on board had pumped and bailed and bailed and pumped until they were exhausted, it became plain that the Central America, with her three or four hundred passengers and all her crew, was likely to go down into the deep, deep sea and carry nearly all on board with her. The crew launched the only boats they had. They placed the women and passengers in these boats and with just a sufficient complement of sailors to manage them. All honor be to them for their kind feeling to the weak and defenseless at a time like that. The boats put off from the vessel, but there were left behind two or three hundred people, many of them gold diggers, when the Central America went down. One who left the ship in one of the last boats which took the women described what he saw in the cabin of the steamer when all hope was gone and the great ship was about to go down. Men took out their gold. One said, holding his leather bag containing his long-toiled-for accumulations, Here, take it, who will? Take it, who will? It is no more use to me. The ship is going down. Take it, who will? Others took out their gold dust and scattered it broadcast over the cabin. There they said, take it, take it, who will? We are all going down. There's no more chance for us. The gold will do us no good. Oh, what a comment that is on the truly valueless nature of riches when a man draws near to God. Riches profit nothing in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death, Proverbs 11.4. Think of your folly, your folly as well as your danger, your folly as well as your guilt if you cleave to your sins. Think of your folly if you will not hear the warning which I give you this day. In my master's name, I say to you once more, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish." Sinclair Ferguson was my teacher, is my friend, and I remember in the 80s when I was under his instruction, his saying that he was Her Majesty's chaplain on the Isle of Unst, wild and bleak place off the northern coast of Scotland. Little church, little pastorate, faithfully preaching the gospel. But it was a favorite for nature lovers who would come from the mainland, cross over, and look for birds with their binoculars. 
What they didn't know was there were sheer drops, just sheer drops in various places. Sinclair said to us students, wouldn't you, if you had been there and saw those bird watchers so focused upon nature, wouldn't you have said to them if you saw them nearing the precipice, beware, beware? That's what the minister's call is, in part and in large measure, to call upon those who have not repented to repent, who have not believed to believe, and to do so in light, in view of the wrath to come. That's what John is preaching here. The longer before one repents, the harder his heart is. Stephen Gardner, who was Roman Catholic bishop who sent many a Protestant to burn at the stake, when he was on his deathbed, he said, I have denied my master with Peter, but I cannot repent with Peter. So there are times where the minister needs to say to you, now, believe now, repent now, in the prayer that the Lord will take the word right to your heart and grant you faith and grant you repentance. There's a man in a hotel room. He's there with his bottle. He's there with his gun. He's thinking of taking his life. He has attempted to get up the courage with the liquor. He's written a a note saying, this is why I'm taking my life for the few friends and family that remain. He opens the desk drawer, and there he finds a Gideon Bible. Will he read the Bible and there see Jesus Christ on the page, or will he pull the trigger? A mother's driving down the street. Foolishly, she begins to text, and a Mack truck pulls in front of her. You see, we have no promise of tomorrow, do we? It's important for us to see that when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes, it comes with urgency. Urgency. Because your eternity depends upon your knowing Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And so the whole point is Christ. John pointing to Christ who is about to begin his ministry John, according to John's gospel, preaching, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And can you not see the glory of Christ? Because he is the one who has removed the wrath of God for sinners who believe. John's point is, you need Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is able to save all who come to God by him. And when you come to him, you will find that whatever your heart need may be, he is sufficient. Hear me, Christ is sufficient to remove the wrath of God. Christ is sufficient to grant saving faith. Christ is sufficient to grant repentance. Christ is sufficient to save you and me from sin Christ is sufficient to save you and me from self. Christ is sufficient. And believer, as we come to this table in just a few moments and we take to ourselves these elements, when we take these elements, we are saying, oh, yes, I know and I believe with all of my heart that I have trusted in a sufficient Savior. And it's so sweet to taste the bread and to drink the cup because I know 
the wrath of God has once for all been spent in his sacrifice for me on Calvary's Mount. Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? And God's people said, 